Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, in today's episode, first of all, we want to take you back to 1944. Okay, to the, uh, the sleepy town of Mattoon, Illinois. All right, a prowler is terrorizing the streets. That's what everybody's talking about, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's on the lips of 27 victims from 13 area homes. Uh, it's in the newspaper, and um, most of the accounts are breaking down like follows. Okay. A man in black is creeping through the night. He's prying open windows, perhaps, perhaps your window right now, and uh, he's prying it open just enough to shove the nozzle of a gas gun in. Okay, then he pulls the trigger and he pumps your home with some sort of a noxious, paralyzing chemical, a cloud of this stuff that just, uh, uh, that just makes you sprawl out on the kitchen floor and then you can't move. All you can do is you can, you can just listen to the sound of hopefully the, the prowler, the, the mad gasser running off into the night and not say coming and trying to open your door. Mm-hmm. And this is the subjective reality of the residents of Mattoon, Illinois. I like this for several reasons, and one of the reasons is that it sounds like a potential news item for the podcast Night Vale. It does sound very Night Vale-ish. Mm-hmm. And I love that there's this idea that there's this marauding mad gasser, and of course, this idea all started with someone named Alice Kearney, who smelled a strange gas smell, and, and in fact, the whole community was smelling this weird smell, and... uh she soon said that her throat and lips were burning, and she began to panic when her legs became paralyzed. Mm. And this story just rippled throughout the community, made its way into news stories, and that's when other people began to assume the symptoms for themselves. Yeah, so suddenly, I mean, in no time at all, you have 13 area homes, 27 different alleged victims, all claiming the same story. And the whole time... There seems to be, there's no motive that seems to be at play. These individuals were not, uh, uh, you know, the homes were not robbed. Mm -hmm. Uh, they weren't, uh, they weren't in in any other way, uh, you know, violated. Though you could argue that if someone were to pump a noxious chemical into your house, one that, you know, that this disables your body even temporarily, that that's, that's quite a violation. But still, this, it didn't seem to make sense. Why would someone be doing this? What possible reason? And then, Inevitably, the authorities look into it and nothing turns up. Like there's like no proof. The, uh, they, they bring in an expert in, in chemicals and none of the, none of the symptoms seem to match up with any potential, uh, with most potential, uh, you know, chemical agents. It just all kind of falls apart. And then in no time at all, people kind of forget about it and they move on with their lives. But there was yeah. this, this brief period in which this person, this creature, this whatever was real. Uh, like the, the, even if the objective reality didn't match up, the subjective reality definitely did. And it turns out to be one of the finer examples that we have of mass hysteria. And that is not the only example, especially um, when it comes to mysterious odors that people smell in different communities. There are other examples out there. But the fact that there was this marauding mad gasser in this example and that so many people fell ill Makes it a standout. Yeah, even though this uh, particular uh, story isn't one that just gets crazy amounts of attention, which is one of the reasons I was drawn to it, because I'd never heard of it before, and mm-hmm. it's just so weird and unique. 
but but individuals have um, investigated it more, and some people make uh, more of a uh, more of a play for a, a, a hoax element, uh, particularly with the newspapers. Uh, and then some people some actually make an argument that there may have been like one mad gassing incident or two or even three that were legitimate. But in those cases, still, you would have something that, s- that spiraled out of control into mass hysteria, be it a hoax that people believed in, which, of course, instantly brings to mind, say, uh, the Orson Welles uh, War of the Worlds broadcast, right, mm-hmm. where you have something that is a hoax, a fiction that people buy into and start reacting to, or it's a situation where it happens one time and then everyone assumes it's happening all the time, uh, and that everyone is in danger, and for that, I simply uh, invite you to turn on the evening news, and you'll get a dose of that. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about any sort of uh, potential threat is that there are two extreme ways in which to assess a threat, and one is, say, the normalcy bias, and we've talked about right. this before. This is the tendency for some people to say, oh, nothing is amiss, business as usual. There's not a crazy guy spewing chemicals into my house through a nozzle, because that just doesn't happen. Right. Or even like that chemical smell, nothing. Probably <laughs> from the banana bread I'm baking, right? Yeah. So that's just kind of, you know, the ostrich effect, putting your head in the ground and and, and not trying to face it. Now, the the polar opposite of that would be this kind of hysteria in which you overreact, and then a panic spreads among people. And there are countless examples of this, but we thought we would roll out a couple to try to give people an idea of how throughout the ages and even in modern times, there are cultural things at work here. There's a sort of pattern behind all of this. You know, that uh, first one you mentioned uh, instantly, though, brings to mind uh, emails that you get generally from a concerned family member. It says, I heard that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that someone is going around, like mm-hmm. the kids are, like the one that I read most recently was that, uh, if, if an egg is thrown at your windshield, it's mm-hmm. because it's, it's a gang. And what they want you to do is turn on your windshield wipers, which will then med- right. muddy up your, uh, your windshields even more. And then you have to pull over and that's when the gang gets you. So, so it's, it's a ridiculous idea and it's totally, there's no, there's no truth to it at all, but people buy into it. And that because they think, well, you know, uh, which side am I going to be on? Am I going to be the person that didn't believe that uh, crazy email from my uncle uh, and and then end up uh, getting attacked by a gang? Or am I going to believe it and survive? Right. So, right. You can go to to one of those extremes. You can do the normalcy bias. You can go to Mm -hmm. hysteria or, hey, you could go in the middle and really assess the threat as it is. But um, that being said, there are plenty of instances in which people have kind of fallen prey to that hysteria. Indeed. And one of the best is the dancing plague or dancing epidemic of 1518, a time in which there was no CNC music factory. And yet everybody danced now. <laughs> There's um, no factory to turn no, it out. No. But uh, even though there was no CNC music factory, uh, they had some other things going on. They had uh, they had the plague. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They had uh they had warfare. They had starvation. They mm-hmm. had just every extreme every normal poverty. extreme poverty, along with any other uh, daily angst that we might have in our, our modern age of uh, of comfort. Yeah, and it turns out that this may just contribute to the right conditions for someone to try to unload all that stress and have their own one woman street party. Right. They started dancing. First, it's one gal dancing, right? Mm-hmm. Then it's somebody else. Then it's it's two. Then it's three, and it just escalates until it's it's an epidemic. It's mania. People are dancing in the streets 
for seemingly no reason. And, uh, and, and, and we've spent uh, the rest of history trying to explain why. I mean, there have been various theories that it was, uh, that it was poisoning, that it was some sort of toxicity or illness, but those don't really, uh, really uh, actually level out uh, all that well. And, uh, John Waller, uh, a history professor at Michigan State University, um, he argues that we're really looking at a great classic case of mass hysteria. And key to all of this is to realize that it just didn't come out of nowhere. It's not, there was a pre-existing script for the dancing, um, to a large extent. And that's because the, the dancing plagues, according to John, um, Waller were a calling card of Saint Vitus, uh, an early Christian martyr venerated with dance parties. So the idea is already in the, in the, in everyone's heads. And then one person starts it. Everyone else follows in with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so communities, stress community. And then a, a, an existing script for their behavior. Yeah, and it was called the Dancing Plague of Strasbourg because it kind of was like a plague in the sense that it began to spread mm-hmm. throughout the community. But not only that, people were dancing to their deaths. Now, that wasn't too hard given the circumstances because, you know, one person might be riddled with disease, another person uh, was starving to death, but they were going out dancing. Yeah, well, that's a heck of a way to go. Why not? You're gonna you're gonna topple over into the gutter anyway. Why not do it after a, a lengthy bout of dancing? Just torque out your existence. Yeah, and of course another element to this too is the idea that uh, that there was a that there was a psychosomatic element here too, right? Mm-hmm. That that not only was it uh, affecting behavior, but it was affecting at least uh, your perception of your your body, your, the way then manifesting in symptoms uh, of the body. Uh, and we'll get into that more as we uh, we go forward. Yeah. Now, fast forward a bit. 1692, 1693, you've got the Salem witch trials and you have what is more of a kind of moral mass hysteria. And we are talking about, of course, the group of girls who seem to be exhibiting these demonic signs. And in some cases, uh, these girls were wrongly convicted of witchcraft. In other cases, there was a, a kind of stress reaction to these moral underpinnings among the girls in which they were exhibiting tick-like behavior. Mm-hmm. And important here is to, is to again, keep in mind, stressful situation, uh, stressful environment, uh, young people, and a pre-existing script. Because if you've uh, listened to our past episode, Hammer of the Witches, where we went into depth about uh, witchcraft culture and the paranoia about witchcrafts, there was uh, v- very much uh, by, uh, by 1692... There was a strong script in place for witchcraft and manifestations of witchcraft within a community. So they yeah. could easily draw on that, and everyone knew what it was supposed to be. Well, and I was just thinking about the spiral of silence, uh, the last episode that we recorded, and this idea that there is a kind of silence that settles upon the minority when the majority speaks out very strongly. In mm-hmm. this case, you have the majority those in power saying that there is witchcraft in this town. This is going on. Yeah, people and, in authority, people in the church, yes. uh, you know, particularly who are saying that, yes, which not only is witchcraft a threat, but is like the big threat today. Yeah, among our girls, and we know it's happening. Mm-hmm. So in this weird way, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, I'm sure, for some of these girls who say, well, they're, they say that, that uh, Satan is inhabiting us, and maybe I'm feeling Satan inhabiting myself right now. And that's why I'm shuddering or I'm talking in voices or exhibiting these, these really aggressive tics. 
All right, fast forward once more to 2006, 2007. A mysterious illness begins to affect girls at a boarding school in Chalco, Mexico. That's near Mexico City. The school, which uh, is run by Roman Catholic nuns, is one of 10 in Asia and Latin America operated by a charity called World Villages for Children in Asia. The girls, aged 12 to 17, begin to show strange symptoms, such as difficulty walking, fever, nausea, and... Uh, after the girl, and this was after a girl's returned from a 10-day Christmas break, the illness, this illness spreads even more. So eventually 600 out of the 3,600 girls at the school show these symptoms. And, uh, you know, the, the doctors are looking into it, and no one can figure out what exactly going on. You know, you're looking for that underlying illness, that underlying environmental cause right. even, and nothing is popping up. So after conducting numerous ch- uh, tests, uh, surveying the facility, interviewing uh, folks, tr- you know, trying to get to the heart of it, Doctors decided that it was uh, it was all a matter of mass psychogenic disorder, which we also call collective hysteria, mass psychosomatic reaction, and of course mass hysteria. There's not one term that we end up using uh, because uh, DSM hasn't uh, hasn't ruled on it. AP style doesn't have uh, have one that they like. So uh, for all intents and purposes, mass hysteria. So going back to the girls at the boarding school, consider that. These kind of symptoms spread and began after they returned from Christmas break, because this is pretty okay. key, because it turns out that this is a really highly structured environment, very disciplined and regimented, and the correspondence and interaction with parents is sparse. Their children see their parents no more than three times a year. And these kids are returning from having just spent time with their families, and it kind of stress settles in, mm. again, in this highly regimented, almost, you know, foreign environment to them. Right. The opposite of what you would think of as a family-supportive uh, structure. And that explains a lot of the reasons why this these kids were reacting the way that they were and why it kind of spread in that manner. Um, now, I wanted to mention two quick outliers here. Okay. In the mass hysteria village, one is Pokemon, (laughs) (laughs) a strange and uh, seemingly inexplicable outbreak of bizarre behavior struck Japan in 1997 when thousands of Japanese school children experienced frightening seizures after watching an episode of Pokemon and intense flashes of light during the show triggered relatively harmless and brief seizures, nausea and headaches. And when doctors diagnosed some of the children with a rare pre-existing condition called photosensitive epilepsy, which is brought on by all these flashing lights, right. they figured out that, you know, indeed, there was like, you know, a couple of kids that were reacting to the show. But the other kids who reacted were just simply exhibiting signs of mass hysteria because they had heard about the other kids who were having seizures. Oh, wow. So in a sense, they were copying those symptoms, but uh, but in a more meaningful way, almost. I mean, they were kind of they were actually participating in it. Yeah, and if you think about Pokemon and it being such a strong cultural signifier, mm-hmm. then it kind of follows that. Oh, wow! If those kids had such a reaction to it, maybe I would, because it's, there's this is really an important cultural signifier. Well, you, these you, kids. you think back to Beatlemania, right? And you see yeah. those, the, the footage of the girls just going completely crazy, like screaming yeah. madhouse crazy over <laughs> the Beatles. Yeah. You know, which is, it can, it can be difficult to understand, right? Because, I mean, the things that we love in our lives, we don't go that crazy for, or at least I don't. So, but, but if you think of it from that point of view that like, 
like you know one one fan starts acting that way, then another, and then another, and then that is the that is the script for how to react. And you just jump in, you join it. You, yeah. It's, it's it's parts peer pressure, it's part fitting in with the the crowd. Uh, but then it has these uh, psychosomatic aspects as well. Yeah, apparently the Beatles at some point uh, at the the top of their popularity when when you know girls were swooning and fainting and, and shouting and screaming, they said that it became absolutely unbearable to perform because they couldn't even hear their instruments. Wow. So they they and what they were saying is that they had become a cultural phenomenon, but not for themselves or their artistry. And in fact, their musicianship was all but, you know, swept aside in this sea of screams. So it became about the, the sea of screams rather than them. Huh. You know, I also can't help but think about uh, faith-based healing uh, situations. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, particularly one, I don't know if I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but uh, when I was in uh, late high school, early college, went with a friend to check out uh, a church in Huntsville, Alabama. And the uh, they were doing this thing where people would be healed mm-hmm. by the pastor, but they would uh, they would fall to the ground and they would laugh hysterically mm-hmm. and they would roll around laughing and uh, then they would have to bring around uh, blankets to put over the the, uh, the the females because they had dresses on and you know it's like a modesty blanket while you roll around with the Holy Spirit right rolling through you and making you laugh hysterically and uh, you know I tried to figure out that that out for a long time uh, but when you start looking at it from the guise of mass hysteria. It makes a lot more sense. Yeah, and it's kind of speaking in tongues too. The same thing yeah. is at work. You're part of this thing, whatever it is. Yeah, you're you know? engaging in the in times in the ritual of it. And ritual, mm-hmm. as we've discussed before, is incredibly powerful. Now, imagine being a lonely nun in 1844. You are in a French uh, convent, and I don't know. You just feel like meowing like a cat, <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, you have your fellow nuns meowing with you. Every day at a certain time for several hours together, so much so that the neighbors begin complaining that this uh, cavalcade of nuns meowing is driving them insane. And here you have another lovely little case of mass hysteria, and you have those cultural underpinnings present. In other words, you talked about the story before, mm-hmm. right? The story here is that Satan sometimes can take the form of animals, particularly ah, cats. I knew it. Right. So maybe Satan entered you and began meowing like a cat so that you could let others know that you are now in league with Satan and you need help. You know, you'd think Satan would be more creative when he took over a nunnery. I feel like yeah. I, I feel like the like Italian films of the 1970s and 80s really had a more uh, imaginative vision of this sort of thing. But, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that we're talking about some very basic folkloric yeah. uh, totems here, like and, cats. And, I mean, we're, again, stress and anxiety and almost kind of a release valve. Like, you think of it as the, like the crack yeah. in that regimented society. And, you know, maybe there's not room for a full-blown goat-worshipping release, but there's just enough room for meowing to be the thing, and then it just catches like wildfire. You know, in, one, in some ways, it's probably a lot more acceptable to be possessed by Satan and start meowing like a cat, rather than just being like, this place is driving me crazy, yeah. and start screaming and acting out. Yeah, know? because then there's something really wrong with you, but if it's Satan, just kind of like, it's like getting your uh, your email account hacked, right? You just yeah. have to say, all right, hey, everybody, uh, if you got a weird email from me yesterday, just disregard it, I was hacked by Satan. Right. Yeah. Satan as a sacrificial goat in the form of a cat. Yes. Um, if you guys want a more 
like full on nun mass hysteria and, and other tales, um, make sure to check out our sister podcast of mom never told you. Yeah, they are episode. crazy. Yeah. No, no, they're not actually hysterical. <laughs> no, they're not. I mean, they are hysterical, but not in that hysteria way. Gotcha. Uh, but their episode is called the mysterious case of convulsing cheerleaders. And they look a little bit more into the female factor. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk more about what mass psychogenic illness is. All right, we're back. Uh, we're talking about mass hysteria. We've uh, we've run through a number of different uh, encounters from crazy guys with gas guns to meowing nuns. And, uh, you know, the, the, the amazing thing about it, the crazy thing about it, is that with all of these cases, on the surface level, you have two crazy stories to choose from. Is Because on one level, meowing nuns, crazy people with gas guns, those are crazy ideas. And you don't want to live in a world where there are crazy gas gun wielding maniacs and meowing nuns possessed by the devil. Like that's, that's a crazy world. But on the other hand, you're talking about a world in which you can catch this kind of crazy where there's a, you'll have a situation where even if the objective reality doesn't match up, the subjective reality becomes we're possessed by the devil and people are buying into this behavior. People are, are, are feeling things in their body and experiencing things, at least in their memory, if mm-hmm. not in the perception of reality, that are starkly different from what's really going on. So where it becomes helpful is to really break down uh, mass hysteria and and, dis- and, and sort of take a, a few different steps to get there, to realize that this isn't really an, a crazy exception to our experience of reality, but just a, a step to the left. Yeah, because I, you make a good point. You have these extreme examples, but when you really start to look at mass hysteria, it's a lot more subtle than you think, and it actually permeates our culture in less flamboyant ways. Right. Like, the best way to start, really, I think, is to talk about the psychosomatic aspects here. Like, yeah. the idea that you can, just thinking something, believing something, buying into it with your mind, can have manifestations in your body, which can sound a little hippy-dippy, perhaps, or, or magical on the surface of things, except it's been tested out. And one of the best examples of this is the placebo effect, but mm-hmm. also the nocebo, nocebo effect, which are basically two different shades of the same thing. Yeah, it's essentially expecting a certain outcome, and that could be a positive outcome or mm-hmm. it could be a negative outcome. And we've seen this in, in rafts of studies that yeah. have to do usually with a drug that's being tested out, right? Yeah. There's a laundry list of negative effects that someone might experience. They're given the sugar pill, and lo and behold, they experience heart palpitations or, you know, anxiety, depression, so on and so forth, because the expectation is there. Yeah, it's the same mechanism that allows the individual who receives the sugar pill to feel revitalized and healed. Mm -hmm. So with both cases, there is a there's there's a physical manifestation of what's going on. You know, it's not to the effect where like a leg is falling off or anything like that. But but it's. The thing that you hold in your mind, you're also holding in your body. Yeah, so it's kind of a short walk from there to, say, being in a community where there is a strange odor in the air and someone has seems to have fallen ill because of it and then assuming those symptoms for yourself because nocebo effect 
is essentially at play. Yeah, I mean, just think about uh, uh, conversion disorder. Uh, this causes patients to experience neurological symptoms such as numbness, blindness, paralysis, um, or fits without uh, any definable biological cause. And again, uh, tying in with what we've talked about previously, this often arises out of stress or inner conflict with increased susceptibility of the individual has a history of medical or mental health problems. Okay, yes. so so we so here we see kind of mass hysteria patient zero in a sense. You know, you can look at it that way. Yeah, it's an extreme example of this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, though, it follows form, and that form is basically you have that cultural script, you have that stressor. And then you have that expectation of what you think should happen mm-hmm. or might happen. And hey, all of a sudden you have a community or a group of people who are experiencing all these terrible things. Yeah. And so indeed, we're finally at mass hysteria where people are actually catching or at least acquiring the symptoms of another person or of multiple other people. And again, this is generally taking place in a close knit society under stress with some sort of predetermined script. Uh, that uh, that can explain what's happening. Yeah, and when we talk about this kind of contagion, it's worth bringing up that this the social contagion seems to affect seems to affect more females than males, or at least is reported in that way. So a lot has been written about this topic. We're not going to dive into it too deeply. Yeah, because there's a lot of gender issues to take into account, a lot of historical yeah. issues to take into account. And, and ultimately is going to break down community to community to community. Yeah. But I mean, one of the things you could say is that we know culturally that it is, uh, it's far more accepted for women to express their feelings than men. Mm-hmm. So that could be one thing at play. Um, here's something that's from Ruth Graham. She writes, uh, for Slate magazine. She said symptoms often start with older girls or women and spread to younger or lower status girls. And she says, as girlhood guardian Caitlin Flanagan put in the New York Times, it is cheerleaders and not the linebackers who come down with ticks and stuttering. But as research has shown, it is also the cheerleaders and not the math club girls who are likely to spread hysteria. What she's getting at mm-hmm. is that all of a sudden this seems like a sort of popular girls thing to happen. And it becomes part of that whole model that we've talked about with teens in this idea of feeling included and not excluded from their peers. So yeah. you can see how this is working at that level. Yeah, as we've discussed in the past, yeah, it's um it's vital at that age because you're you've evolved as an organism to fit in at you know with with potentially lethal consequences if you don't. You mm-hmm. have to become a member of a community because you have this genetic mission you have to carry out and you have to carry that out within a community and that's the only way you're going to survive and so everything in your body and your hormones is pushing you towards that. Well, and speaking of genetic mission, this uh, ties in really nicely to the next example of mass hysteria, and it's a male-centric example. And by the way, there are plenty of just male-centric ones in which mm-hmm. this, you know, certain uh, hysteria is affected only men. And this one, this one is called the penis-snatching panic. Ah, this is the idea that one's uh, penis will be taken away in the night or that it will... Uh, Withdrawal into the body, lost to you forever. Yeah, uh, Louisa Lombard, an anthropologist at the University of California at Berkeley, described visiting a small town in the Central African Republic where she encountered two men who claimed that their penises had been stolen. <laughs> and it seems that the day before, a traveler visiting the town had shaken hands with a tea vendor who immediately claimed that he felt a shock and sensed that his penis 
had shrunk. <laughs> and then he cried out an alarm and a, and a crowd gathered. And then the hysteria began to spread and other men began to say, my penis shrunk too. Uh, you know, I'm just now remembering from, uh, from when we did the episode, uh, uh, Hammer of the Witches, where we went into the witchcraft uh, mania in Europe, uh, that, that there was a whole chapter devoted to that uh, in the Western tradition of people uh, either afraid or, or convinced that uh, a witch may have stolen or otherwise in any way messed with their penis in the night. Yeah, no, nobody wants their penis to be messed with yeah, during the night. Yeah, or certainly stolen by witches. Yeah. No, indeed. So that's to show that that females do not have a monopoly on mass hysteria, that uh, that men definitely engage in it, and there are models of it that are male exclusive. Yeah, and again, that's just one example. But a lot of this has to do with not just how we tell the stories of our culture and we engage in them, but also our memories of the events. Yeah, that's especially key when you're talking about stuff like the Mad Gasser, where so much of it is, is you know, after the fact, people are being interviewed and saying, what happened? Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about it. Tell me the story of this thing that you said occurred. And and then we're engaging with our memory, which, as we've discussed before, is far from a perfect uh, engine. There, uh, In fact, according to, um, to uh, Daniel uh, Schachter, author of the seven sins of memory, how the mind forgets and remembers, there are, as the title suggests, seven keys ways that we screw up our memories, mm-hmm. that our memories are just flawed either from the get-go or we end up screwing them up when we recall them. Because if you remember, uh, from, from our, uh, the metaphor we always return to is that a memory is made out of clay, not stone. Mm-hmm. Every time you get it out of the drawer to look at it, you're getting your fingers all over it and you're changing the form of it, maybe a little, maybe a lot, before you put it back in. Uh, and certainly refer back to that episode for more on that. I'll be mm-hmm. sure to include a link to that episode in the landing page at StuffTheWillYourMind.com for this episode. But uh, just to run through the seven sins of memory real quick, there's um, there's transience. This is the weakening or loss of memory over time. That uh, the Mad Gaster thing happened last week. Uh, it's been a week. I don't have as firm memory of it. Maybe it's been a year. So your, your memory fades uh, over time, obviously. Uh, then there's absent-mindedness, and this is attention in memory. You know, you're trying to recall the details of what happened, and if you're you were legitimately stressed, you were on the floor, uh, and you didn't feel you could move your legs. Maybe your your memory of the finer details isn't all that great. There's blocking attempted. Uh, this is when you're you know, attempting to recall tidbits of memory, and uh, and you you can't recall that face, you can't recall that name. Uh, we've all, all been there before. There's misattribution. This is where we recall an authentic memory, but Aspects of it are misattributed. Um, and then there is suggestibility, the power of suggestion. This has been borne out in, uh, in a number of, uh, of uh, studies, uh, particularly aimed at law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, you, su- you suggest that this individual in the lineup uh, was the perpetrator, and then you can, you know, you can actually convince the victim that that's who it was. Uh, bias is a huge uh, factor, right. too. Uh, you already have a bias uh, in this particular question. That's going to color the memory. And then finally, you have... Um, uh, persistence, this is the failure of the memory system involving unwanted recall of information that's disturbing. Yeah, and so we bring this up, uh, particularly in, in the context of something like the Mad Gasser, in which you have this community that's reacting to this smell, right? They're on high alert. Mm-hmm. And they begin to misremember uh, details of what's happening at that time, but they misremember them in a way that it fits into bias and suggestibility, right? right? And that, pre, that pre-existing script. I mean, that's, that's the bias uh, right there. Yeah. And we've talked about this before, but it turns out that the, the, the more freighted with emotion 
a situation or memory is, the less reliable your memory is. And we've talked about this before in the 9-11 studies is that, you know, m- the more emotionally charged someone is, um, just the the less they can actually recall those events or details. So if you think about situations like the mad gas or, or really any of the other examples, um, you can see how people begin to piece things together to fit that narrative. Wow. So the narrative could be informing psychosomatic uh, experiences, mm-hmm. which then that's, that's heightening the experience and making the memory uh, more malleable uh, to uh, influence by the pre-existing script. Right. And again, go back to placebo, nocebo. You see this at uh, play in, in the, the most, I don't know, I guess you could say uh, rote ways. And yet here, here it is bearing out this information that it's just the idea or even the expectation that can really even color our physical symptoms that we exhibit. Yeah, this all brings to mind uh, hallucinations as well, because uh, like the real take home from looking at, at hallucinations is that the, the, the science of hallucinations, the reality of hallucinations, it really shows that our perception of reality itself is a kind of hallucination. So when you look at the flaws of memory and the and and the way the way that uh, mass hysteria can take uh, can take hold of a community, uh, it's less about how crazy these people are, but how inherently flawed and susceptible uh, to this kind of outbreak uh, all of our minds are, all of our communities are. And if you think about it this way, um, mass hysteria, sort of like the base stock of the mass hysteria soup, mm-hmm. is threat. Yes. What is the threat level to us? And that's where we can see sort of the things that are going on in our modern world coloring our reactions to that. And I'm talking about specifically bioterrorism. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, I think most of our listeners can probably uh, chime in on this uh, because in the wake of 9-11, there was, there was a lot of this. It was in the media. You know, anthrax was being sent places or at least in, in many cases – uh, you know, some sort of possible anthrax was being sent places and people were, were freaking out. Uh, and at the, the heart of it, in the distance, there, there was a threat. You know, there were some, there, there, there was a reality to it. But the echoes from that threat were what was really affecting everybody. Right. It was spreading through people and creating this sort of mass hysteria reaction to it in a way. And more specifically, in December 2005, there was a mysterious illness marked by headache fever and faintness and numbness in the extremities. And this occurred in 13 school children in the Shelkov region of Chechnya. And a lot of people believe the illness was caused by a Russian chemical weapons attack. That was the idea here um, because this is what precipitated this idea, the rapid spread of similar symptoms throughout the region. Now, medical officials determined the episode was a case of psychosomatic contagion here and it was brought on by the anxiety over Russian military uh, Russian military activities in the area. So again, here's this: here's a threat level, an implied threat level, right? You have an aggressor, right? And then all of a sudden, you have a reaction to this kind of constant paper tiger, but not paper tiger. I mean, you know, and this is exhibited in the school children, who probably are the most anxious about it. There's almost a comparison to be made with phobias here, right? Because with phobias, you have a realistic fear that just gets bigger and bigger until it yeah. gets, becomes unreasonable. And with this, you have 
a fear that becomes bigger and bigger to where it becomes unreasonable, and then it can become so unreasonable that it's it's affecting your experience of reality and experiencing your, your bodily experience of reality. Yeah, and I should mention, too, that according to the Department of Homeland Security, there was no evidence that the illnesses were caused by a chemical weapon or weapons. So it, truly, in this case, it was a kind of social contagion. Uh, certainly right now, uh, as we record this, Ebola is still huge in the news. Uh, not only in legitimate concerns about, uh, of course, the the uh, the plight in Africa, but uh, but also Ebola here on the home front. But while some of it is legitimate, there is a lot of illegitimate fear out there. There's a lot of fear mongering uh, in the media, yeah. and uh, and the average individual has to figure out where they stand in all this. So you know which which uh, which radio signal are they going to tune into? Yeah, there's the catastrophic thinking. Mm-hmm. Or there's the normalcy bias, or again, there's the middle, just yeah. logical reaction. But here is a catastrophic thinking example right here in Georgia, the state in which we reside. There was a school who would not allow Rwandan students to attend simply because their families were from Rwanda. They live here, of course, mm-hmm. not in Rwanda. (laughs) And uh, moreover, Rwanda is something like 2,000 miles removed from any of the Ebola-stricken countries in Africa. So again, here's an example of, well, uh, these people have relatives from Africa. Close enough, right? Yeah. yeah. But that's kind of like saying um, there's this outbreak in California and we have some students in Michigan whose families are from California and so we're not going to allow them because that's two, that's a two thousand mile yeah difference there. Uh, so we're not going to allow these students with, you know, some family from California to attend. Well, so it, again, it starts as a legitimate concern, and then it it blows into unrealistic proportions. Yeah. Now, one thing that we saw firsthand is <laughs> this sort of internet spread of social contagion and mass. I don't know if you'd call it mass hysteria. No, not quite mass, but I can see the potential for mass hysteria in it, which uh, I think is where it gets really interesting. So we did, you know, that episode on holes, the fear of holes. Yeah, trip, uh, trypophobia. Trypophobia. And we did a little video to go along with it. Mm-hmm. We, and, and we did the podcast, and I made a, I photoshopped an image. Yes. With uh, the lotus seed uh, pod on a, a woman's back. It was great. It was just dastardly great. I'm, I've spent way too much time on it, so I'm glad it, it worked for people. Well, I mean, it, it definitely had a, re- there was a reaction. People went kind of nuts on our Facebook feed, mm-hmm. and they were, the, a lot of people were really upset. We had some people who unsubscribed. Yeah. And again, this the idea behind holes, which was um, borne out actually on Facebook accidentally as an experiment for us, was that there, it's not a real phobia. It's just that people see these photos, they see the reaction, and then there's a kind of you know social element to it in which people say, "Oh, that's terrible! I'm about to throw up." Yeah, yeah. People have this visceral reaction. We had at least one uh, person commenting on either our share of it or the House of Works Facebook share of it. Who said they they were physically anxious over it? Like they were having trouble coming down from a high level of anxiety after seeing the image. Yeah. And of course, my whole thing was, you know, was and continues to be. If you listen to our podcast, we discuss plenty of troubling ideas, plenty of troubling concepts, and depressing details Mm -hmm. from history or just from the human experience that you know are far worse than uh, you know a seed pod photoshopped onto a woman's back. But but. But it's that image that really stirred people up. I will say, though, our video producer, Tyler Klang, had said that after 
hours of editing that footage uh-huh. for holes that he became very sensitive to it. Hmm. And here's a guy who's really practical, skeptical. So, you know, but that's long-term exposure. Right. <laughs> so it, it's not quite mass hysteria, but, but again, I, I, you could see where it, it could reach that point. You do see this fearful idea taking hold in people and spreading uh, in, in a kind of meme format. Yeah, because ultimately what we're talking about here is threat and threat level. Yeah. Okay, is that is the whole really a threat? Mm-hmm. Mm, no, no, right? You're not going to fall into it. It's not going to break out on your skin. And then you look at something like, say, nut allergies or even vaccinations, and you get the same sort of parallels of is, to what degree is there actually a threat? Yeah. Now, nut allergies, I do want to preface here and say we're by no means you know, putting down children with nut allergies. Uh, my son goes to a, a, a school and there's a, a kid in his class that has nut allergies. All the snacks, you know, have to be nut free. And that's, you know, we totally understand that. Not bucking that system at all. No, because some people can have such severe reactions that it can right. actually cause death. And we know this. And this is why parents have become so, I guess, exquisitely attuned to the threat of nuts in schools and other places. Um, so we're talking about like instances in which there have been say an evacuation of a bus because there was a peanut on the floor rolling around right. or, you know, again, nut free schools or search only certain areas where kids can eat their peanut butter sandwiches and right. no other kids can come into contact with them. So you have someone like Professor Nicholas Christakis from Harvard Medical School, and he says that there's no evidence that any of these extreme restrictions work better than more circumscribed policies or that they're worth the money or disruptions that they create. That's what he says. Yeah, yeah. He points out that in the United States alone, 150 people die each year from food allergies. And this is compared to the 50 who die from bee stings, the 100 who die from lightning strikes, and, of course, the 45,000 who die in motor vehicle accidents. Uh, and then the 10,000 who are hospitalized for traumatic brain injury from playing sports. But he says that we, these issues don't stir up such extreme reactions, you know. For the most part, nobody is saying let's ban all sports because there are traumatic uh, brain injuries that occur. They're not saying don't put my child in a bus or a car ever because that's super dangerous and they're going to die that way. Right, and Christakis is, is essentially saying that when it comes to peanut allergies that there's, quote, a gross overreaction to the magnitude of the threat. And basically saying that it's similar to mass psychogenic illness, hmm. that the, this idea of, you know, the threat in people's head has just become outsized. Huh. Yeah. And, and he's, def- he's definitely analyzing this from, you know, almost an economic standpoint, you know, but uh, but it, it's, it's an interesting uh, way to look at it. And again, I, I'm sure uh, parents with uh, children with nut allergies or individuals out there with nut allergies uh, will have a, a very different take on this, but. Indeed. And we are not going to dip our toes into the anti-vax pool, but we can certainly say, again, parallels exist there between, um, you know, what is the perceived threat as opposed to the actual threat. Yeah, you have a close-knit community. That community may be in person. That community may be on a message board somewhere. And everyone's buying into a particular script of what needs to be done and what the consequences to, uh, to doing or not doing it are. Yeah, and there's also this, you know, causation correlation thing too, right? So, mm-hmm. um, for instance, in Chechnya, right, there was this idea like, okay, this, there have been chemical weapons before. Therefore, that's probably what happened here right. with these children. That's why they, they fell ill. And so again, just 
we're seeing that cultural script. We're seeing those stressors at play. And I can understand this because there's probably nothing more stressful, honestly, than being responsible for another person's life, which is essentially what parents have to do. That's their job. So you began to look at all these different elements in a kid's environment and trying to figure out, like, how do I keep this kid alive best? Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's it's super stressful. And if you screw it up, you can go to jail. You know, that's the crazy part. Yeah, you can. Yeah. That's why I tell my son that all the time. It's like I it's like I'm just trying to to not have you die on my hands here. That's that's what I'm trying to do here at the playground today is you not die. That is daddy's job. Uh huh. Please let him do it. Yeah. I end up talking to myself in the third person. Uh-huh. Sound like a How does that uh, go over with the other parents in the park? Oh, it depends on the parents. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, some of them, uh, some of them definitely get it, but they're all talking th- about themselves in the third person. They're their toddler anyway, so it no, all that's true. Out. That's true. So there you have it: mass hysteria, the mad gasser, uh, and again, I just I love this uh, this story, the mad gasser, and I'm so astounded that nobody has turned this into a horror franchise because it, just in my own mind, I've already like worked out all the details about how this could. This could be the next big like slasher movie thing with just a few tweaks because the 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 story as it exists is creepy and weird, but not necessarily straight up horror movie material. But you start combining this with some of the the real terrifying uh, you know aspects of chemical weapons, and you I mean you've got yourself a pretty scary story. I and feel. Yeah, I feel like there's tons of existential angst to plumb in that too. Yeah. Yeah. All right, um, guys, we have other offerings for you, and you can find these offerings of love at a little place called StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's right. You will find all the podcast episodes there. Uh, episodes we recorded just back in you know primordial days, uh, you will find on that website. Stuff that's not on iTunes. Go check it out. Uh, and also, uh, especially with the more recent episodes, you know, those individual pages are going to have illustration. They're going to have uh, links to uh, related items on the site, external items, uh, making a real effort to include all of that. Plus, you'll find our videos. You'll find blog posts. You'll find pictures of what we look like, as well as links out to our social media account. And uh, if you guys have some ideas percolating about mass hysteria, have you ever been involved in an incident that sounds a lot like what we're describing? Please do let us know about it. And you can do so by sending us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 